0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Liu Bapapeu. She is a tenured researcher at the Institut des Sciences Cognitives, Marc jean of the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique in France, and principal investigator of the research programme, Tempo, funded by a European Research Council starting grant. And today we're talking about social perception basically what we pay attention to in other people and their interactions and the social information we get from that so dr papeo welcome to the show it's a big pleasure to everyone thanks for having me so when it comes to how we perceive other people what are the kinds of things we usually pay attention to
1: so um Attention depends on uh, um, a number of things, Uh, depends on the salience of the stimuli, so how salient the stimuli are to our eyes. So for instance, a bright red object is going to attract our attention more than a dark, uh, small uh, object. But at the same time, uh, attention also depends on our internal goals, what we're looking for in what we see. And uh, so it's a very uh, interesting balance between uh, the outside world and our internal uh, mental representation and uh, um, so in the case uh, when it comes to people uh, so others uh, con specifics uh, um, there are uh, the first thing like the first thing that we attend to are, are the faces uh, the, uh, the research in uh, cognitive neuroscience uh, has suggested that there is a sort of a hierarchy of the things that we uh, care uh, about first, and this hierarchy goes by uh, eyes, face, and then the rest of the body so um, but again, like a what, what we, we attend first depends on what we are looking for in the outside world. So for instance, if we are looking for instance, for an object, for an interaction with another person, we might, we might, atten- we might be attending more the limbs, so the arms, the hands, than the face. But generally a good, a good sim- summary somewhere is that, you know, the face and eyes come first.
0: But when we look at other people, and later on in our conversation, we're going to get into more detail in terms of, for example, when people are facing one another or in terms of how they uh, present themselves in relation to to one another, what kinds of things we pay attention to and what kinds of informations we get from those kinds of, let's say, interactions, are there... Generally speaking, are there particular kinds of information that we are looking for when we perceive other people in either in isolation or in interaction with others?
1: Um, so um, we pay attention to a lot of things uh, because we we care about a lot of things, uh, but uh, um, we can. Uh, Synthesize these uh, um, the features that we care about in two categories. One is those features that help us to understand who is the other, who the other is, who are you, and the others are the features that uh, uh, help us understand what are you doing. Mm-hmm. So. There are these two aspects of uh, another that we uh, consider very important for uh, our immediate behavior and also for our survival. So when we look at another another person, uh, we are very efficient, our system, our visual system is very efficient at extracting a number of um, uh, important pieces of information that allow to, for instance, um, decide or establish surely the gender, the age. We are very sensitive to the cues that uh, suggest the, the age of our um of the other um the uh, origin the race there are uh, there is a f- full line of research suggesting that uh, there are very subtle ways in which difference in the race of the others affect our behavior. Um, And uh, uh, of course uh, also we can extract information from just the visual appearance by just looking at the others. We can extract information about the status for instance, how dominant the person is in the social hierarchy and the state, so the mental state, the mood of the person. There are beautiful experiments showing that just by looking at the motion pattern, so the way in which another uh, moves, we are very accurate in uh, determining uh, uh, their emotion, whether it's happy or sad, and so on. And this is the category of features that I define as those that allow us to understand who the other is. But then there is another set of features that we are very good at uh processing and extracting from visual information from just looking at the others, which are the features that allow us to understand what the other is up to, what is about to do. Um, And uh, these features are especially important uh, um, in the context of social interaction. So it's very important uh, um, to uh, observe the others interacting between each other with each other to extract a number of features that allow us to understand uh, again is a role in the society in a, in a specific context about also more generally um, whether a person is uh, um, in the in the social hierarchy above or uh, below the other person, uh, the level of intimacy, the social distance, uh, and also from the way in which two interact with each other, we can immediately understand with a very fine sensitivity to the motion patterns, the way in which people move and interact with each other whether they're having they are in a friendly relationship whether they're sharing the same goal or they are competing whether they're helping each other and so on all these all this information comes out of almost a first glance to the others
0: and b- by the way, you mentioned uh, several different things there, like for example people's race or ethnicity i mean uh, do we know to what extent some of the things or the kinds of informations we uh, the kind of information we want to acquire from other people and the kinds of things and behaviors we pay attention to if, if at least to some extent they are? culturally learned there is i mean my pay, paying attention to one person's ethnicity is something that i learn culturally to pay attention to or if all of these things or at least a few of them uh, are sort of quote unquote innate there is even newborns already pay some attention to some of these features and behaviors? What do we know exactly about that?
1: So, that's um, that's a very interesting question that has been uh, the subject of uh, research for decades. Uh, and, uh, of course, there are many unknowns, many things that we don't know yet. But uh, uh, certainly, uh, we can say that humans uh, uh, are born with uh, a... Innate, an innate, or at least very early, when I say early, I mean within hours from birth, ability to recognize faces, mm-hmm. uh, to detect uh, uh, a specific kind of motion, which we call biological motion, and that's the specific way in which biological entities move, uh, that is very different from instance from the mechanical motion uh humans are also born with uh, uh, a very early capacity to uh attend to the other size and know where the others are looking at us so when we are being addressed relative to when the others are looking somewhere else and we also have a very early Uh, an efficient capacity to follow the other gaze. So to know that's one of the first thing, maybe the most important thing that we uh, look at when we process others, where they're looking, which anticipates or predicts what they're going to do. So if they're Mm -hmm. looking at me, this is probably a signal, a very strong signal of social engagement, is looking for social engagement, is looking away, okay, where, he or she is looking. So these are the things that uh, infants uh, within uh, hours or days from birth are uh, very sensitive to and uh, um, we share many of these processes, many of these mechanisms that make us so efficient in processing socially relevant stimuli with non-human species. Like we have seen similar uh, behaviors, very early behaviors in uh, various species of monkeys, but also in uh, uh, chickens, for instance, or in species that um, are farther away from us. Uh, then there are other aspects, as you asked about the race or so the age. There are other aspects that emerge relatively early. So there are there is, for instance, this phenomenon known as the as the older race effect, which refers to the um, to the basically very early sensitivity to uh, people or to individuals who are from a different um, race than ours. Uh, There is something similar, for instance, in speech perception, this early sensitivity, to differentiate between uh, speech sound that are from our native language and speech sounds that are from another language. For instance, Indians have some uh, 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 sounds, some phonological sounds that we don't have, like the der, the ter, we we don't have these sounds in our language. And uh, uh, very early on, infants are capable of discriminating between the sounds of their native language and sounds from other languages. But this is, this kind of, you know, sensitivity to these more culturally determined differences um, seems to be the result of a learning process which operates very rapidly. Again, within months from birth, infants can make these subtle discriminations. But it's because when they're born, they are born and they're immediately immersed in a very rich social environment. And so they immediately pick up the features that are typical or their native social environment and immediately become capable of distinguishing those features that are very important from their integration in their own society, from uh, features that don't belong to their own, uh, to their own cultural uh, group.
0: So in my first question, one of the things you mentioned that people, and also infants in this case, pay lots of attention to is the face and particular features of the face, like the eyes, for example, eye gaze. Uh, Apart from eye gaze, what are some of the other features of the face that people tend to pay attention to and what kinds of information do we get from that?
1: Um, the uh, human ability to process a face uh, is impressive. I would say that there is nothing that uh, 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 there is nothing that is uh, so efficient, so uh, tuned uh, uh, than the uh, human ability for face perception. So just by looking at a face, we, as I said, we are able to, uh, first of all, uh, immediately recognize uh, the identity and discriminate between the uh, two faces even when there, 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 there is a lot of similarity. Um, and uh, uh, there, are, uh, there are, again, two different aspects, uh, two different categories of features that we extract. Uh, uh, One category is uh, uh, what allows us to identify a person. So as I said, to categorize a person in terms of gender, race, age and if we know the person also immediately assign a name to that person an identity to that person and so immediately retrieve all the you know knowledge and information that we have about that person this this is a very rapid very efficient mechanism and then there is another uh, family another set of features that uh, allows us to uh, uh, to establish uh, to, to to process the actions of the face and in the case of faces actions uh, are uh, manifestation often mani- manifestation of two things one is the communication so by looking at faces just the, the way in which the face move uh, moves uh, is very important for uh, speech perception for instance we know that if we have access to the face of the speaker our Uh, speech processing, so our ability to process and to understand what the speaker is saying is much more efficient. And there are a lot of interesting phenomena that uh, show that in fact the facial movements can affect also the acoustic signal, the acoustic information, what we hear. So if uh, I show a, a, a movement of the lips that is not compatible with the sound that I'm uh, producing, that the speaker is producing, and there are very nice experiments that manipulate the mismatch between the lips movement and, uh, and the sound, you see that we perceive a distorted sound, which means that what we see in the movements of the face affects what we hear. And also the second, the second, type of action information conveys uh, um, information about emotions we know that uh, you know very, we have a very rich repertoire of facial uh, actions uh, that convey a, as well rich Um, set of different emotions. And so these two family, like the features to define who a person is and the features to define what the, the face, is doing, is trying to communicate, um, of course, are tightly related, but uh, can also be dissociated. And when I say dissociated, I imply that they are actually um, features that are processes in partially different parts of the brain. Of course, very strongly integrated.
0: So now I would like to ask you about something very specific that I read about in your work. What is facing dyad perception and does it relate in any way to face perception?
1: So, um, for many uh, years, um, for many decades, uh, cognitive neuroscience studies, of course, we have this uh, very strong uh, and understandable interest uh, for social perception, social cognition, how we understand, how we recognize others. But for many decades, these questions have been these questions have been addressed by uh, studying uh, the perception or the processing of individual faces, individual bodies, individual movements. Uh, until uh, when uh, um, researchers, uh, uh, including uh, uh, myself and the people working with me, uh, decided to see uh, to study uh, what happens to all these beautiful mechanisms that I've been talking about uh, to process faces, motion, bodies, when instead of seeing one face, one person, you see two people together. All these. Um, sensitivity, all this tuning to all these features is preserved or there's something else that happens. And what we have seen, so the main interesting result that we found when we started asking this kind of question was that, uh, as I said, the faces are very special to our visual system and to the whole brain because they are fundamental to understand, interact, recognize others. But what we saw is that uh, when we see instead of one face, two faces, all these uh, very efficient uh, uh, processing uh, is preserved, particularly when the others are perceived as if they are interacting which means face-to-face. So we did a very simple experiment. We, we were studying, you know, the, the efficiency of visual recognition of multiple bodies. And so we presented the pairs of bodies in different spatial configurations. And uh, we soon realized that subjects were particularly efficient at recognizing multiple bodies, as efficient as they are at recognizing one face, when these two bodies are put face-to-face relative to when they are in any other configuration. And so that was the first insight, the first first, uh, uh, piece of information that suggests to us that there might be something really special uh, in the brain uh, uh, about uh, uh, the perception of uh, what we call the facing diet. Now, why the facing diet? Why two people face-to-face would be special to our visual system? Well, this is an open question, but the intuitive response is that this configuration, when we, ha- when we put two people face-to-face, this is the prototypical configuration of human social interactions. So when we interact with others, we privilege this face-to-face positioning because this face-to-face positioning gives us access to the other size, to the other's face, full face so we can extract information about uh, emotions. And uh, also, uh, it gives us access to the whole body. So it's the, the perfect viewpoint to have as much information as possible from the other, and so to facilitate uh, interaction. And so the idea is that this facial configuration, these this face-to-face configuration of body is so important for our social life and so redundant, so recurrent in our social environment that the human brain has developed a mechanism that make the processing of these two bodies especially efficient. And this is confirmed by, if we look at the uh, evolutionary psychology literature, uh, you know, people have studied uh, how often humans uh, spend, uh, how much time humans spend uh, in certain, you know, special positioning, special positions uh, uh, relative to each other. And they've seen that not just humans, but also monkeys and probably other species spend uh, more than uh, uh, the 50% of their time in social interaction facing facing another, so face to face with another, and most of the time, uh, I, I, uh, the most frequent composition involves two people. So face to face dyadic interaction seems to be a, a, an important, uh, a recurrent. Uh, uh, structure in our social life in our social world
0: so this is already i guess one aspect of studying social sin perception right and uh, one of the things associated with that uh, or a concept i guess in this case is minimal social sin so what is that concept really about and what can you study through it
1: so it's, uh, uh, it's uh, this idea of minimal so- social scenes referred refer to what I've just described. So when we started this research, we wanted to see, to isolate, to get really like we we see a lot of interactions, all kinds of uh, actions that people perform on each other or with each other. Uh, uh, people act uh, in uh, diets, in groups. Uh, we have crowds of people doing things together. So the social interaction the, the range of social interactions is possible. Social interactions is very broad, but uh, we wanted to get uh, to the minimal unit. What if we if we remove uh, all the unnecessary features and we get to the core structure of a social interaction? What remains? And what we, remains is this uh, uh, two-body configuration. So this configuration that involves two bodies or two faces in general, two people, two social agents, uh, facing closely, like in spatial proximity and facing each other. So, and this is, this is really like, so we decided to study this configuration of two bodies, this facing dyad, just like we have studied other objects in visual perception just like we have studied faces, we have studied bodies, we have studied any other object in the world, we consider this a new object of visual perception, this a configuration, which is the early rudimentary representation of a social interaction.
0: Uh, and so uh, we've talked earlier about how people interpret when they see someone or a dyad of people facing each other. So... Apart from facing each other, what are perhaps some of the other kinds of cues that people take in when distinguishing between an interacting and a non-interacting dyad in crowds, for example?
1: Yeah, so we have, uh, uh, again, just like in the case of face perception, we are now, this is a very recent line of research that is really considering this new object of social perception, which is not one body, not one face, not one action, but two people together. And so we are now discovering all the uh, information that is rapidly extracted from these uh, stimuli. And so as you said, one is the Uh, relative positioning, what we call the facingness, where they are facing each other or not, or they're facing away from each other. But there are another, uh, a large family of of a a large set of cues that uh, uh, we we think uh, uh, and research suggests that are really relevant to process to initiate the processing of social interaction. Some of of, uh, such cues are, for instance, uh, as I said, the spatial proximity, how close in space two people are, uh, the touch, whether they are in contact, they're touching or not. So uh, others are the mimicry, Whether, you know, their body postures or their facial expression look alike, which means that which which is a feature of the social interaction. When we interact with someone, we tend to have this automatic mimicry of their behavior. And we can see from outside when two people are interacting, they tend to uh, imitate themselves. They tend to coordinate or to synchronize. So coordination, synchrony, mimicry, um, distance, openness, like the the typically people that are interacting have this uh, posture that uh, is open toward each other. And these are very uh, measurable things we can take, you know, photos of interacting people and really measure all these things. And this is exactly what uh, um, scientists are doing right now. Uh, First of all, to understand which are the the properties, the features of an interaction that we process, that we extract uh, uh, from which we make inferences about the social relationship between two people but also to understand whether there is an hierarchy between these things what is the relation between these things we don't have the answer to this question yet but you know intuitively one may think that if two people are face to face they're probably interacting or this is what are brain spontaneously would think. But, uh, you know, if you start uh, manipulating the distance, so you increase the distance between them, probably the effect of facingness starts, you know, diminishing, diminishing. So, and it, it would be interesting to see at which point the distance breaks the effect of facingness, whether it does it at all. So basically this is the kind of questions that we are now asking to to understand how, because that's the thing, the question is not whether we understand social interaction and what we understand about social interaction, because we do understand social interaction. We are very rapid at understanding what kind of relation there is uh, between two people just by looking at these people. And uh, we understand a lot of things. We can extract a lot of kind of information just by looking at how two people interact with each other. But the question that we're trying to answer is how we do it, how our brain does it. So this is why it's important to understand, okay, what are the basic cues that the visual system extracts from the structure of the input, or from what we see outside, that starts this process that then leads to a full understanding of the social interaction.
0: And of course, it's very interesting to understand or know what these basic cues are. I mean, the basic kinds of things that people pay attention to in a social scene to perceive and interpret how people relate to one another and what people are doing that is socially relevant there. But I, I would imagine that something that is also very interesting to understand is, uh, of course, we do this and in the split of a second. It's lots of information, but we process it very, very quickly. But at the same time, I mean, it's not uh, like isolated cues, but we are sort of taking it all in at the same time. I mean, it's like several different cues that we process uh, very quickly, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's uh, um, like uh, you know, the, of course, uh, the the result of uh, this uh, uh, process is uh, extremely impressive, as you said. In the um, in in a few uh, tens or uh, hundreds of milliseconds, we are capable of. You know, know exactly who you are, what you're doing, and what's your relationship with another. If you think about it, it's pretty impressive. Now the question again is how the mm-hmm. brain does it? So we are uh, a little bit uh, uh, like farther away from an answer to this question. For as I said, like we know a lot about face perception and body perception and biological motion perception, and that's a good basis, I think, to start this enterprise of you know understanding how we understand our complex social world. But uh, um, you know there are questions uh, that are because of course understanding what the others are doing and how they relate to each other also requires to understand what what they have in mind. So understand their goals, their intention, their motivations. And uh, uh, these these questions fall under the big umbrella of social cognition, um, social neuroscience. And uh, this is a very young enterprise. We have begun asking this question uh, a few years ago. And uh, there is a lot of uh, effort and a lot of energy, a lot of resources now that are dedicated to this kind of research, mostly because it's clear that uh, um, the society that we are building, that we have built and that we are building uh, relies on our ability to manage people, to organize group of people, to understand how people relate to each other. So to, to, to be able to sustain this kind of social environment that we, we live in, we have to understand as much as we can about the human social brain. But uh, again, this is a very young uh, enterprise and so most of the questions are still open to, to discussion.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So, and since we're talking here also about the brain, of course, I'm, and we are referring mostly to spatial information, spatial cues, they are processed, of course, by the visual system. And is it the case that socially relevant spatial relations are represented visually differently than stimuli that are just unrelated or appear and related to one another
1: yeah absolutely so this is basically the uh, one of the main findings of our research in the in the recent years uh, so uh, as I said we have first uh, uh, found uh, uh, initial evidence in, uh, in our empirical data uh, our empirical results suggesting that uh, facing individuals which is our uh, which is a proxy of social interacting individuals. So when I say facing, I'm implying that this positioning is somehow suggesting to our brain that these two people are interacting and this is why it's so important for our brain. So as I said, we have found that the facing individuals are processed more efficiently than the very same individuals in, in a different space spatial relation, and uh, uh, we have begun to uh, show that uh, the very specialized mechanism that uh, we have learned um, to appreciate in face perception also apply to this configuration of seemingly interacting bodies, so face-to-face bodies. And, uh, uh, and then we have found, that I use a, a lot of functional MRI, which is a neuroimaging methodology that allows to uh, record the brain at work while it's working. So to look into the brain, uh, to measure the brain activity during uh, um, any kind of cognitive task and uh, so using fMRI we have seen that uh, visually in the visual areas so in the areas dedicated to face body biological motion perception the very same bodies so the two, the two bodies the very same bodies are processed differently when they are face to face relative to when they're back to back and this is pretty impressive because uh, so we just had the stimuli with the two bodies either Position face to face or identically just flipped so that they look back to back. So from a visual viewpoint, these two stimuli carry exactly the same information, the same amount of information, it's exactly the same number of pixels, the same body shapes, the same postures, the same color, brightness, and all the visual information that you think of. But just the fact, that their face-to-face, their positioning to face each other or facing away from each other drives all kinds of different effects in the visual cortex. So for instance, the visual cortex in general, the level of activity in the areas for face and body perception is significantly higher, so the regions respond more when the bodies are face-to-face relative to when the two people are back-to-back, which is already, I think, very interesting. But also, uh, for instance, we have found using more sophisticated analytic methods uh, on uh, uh, fMRI data that the representation of each individual body is more accurate, so the brain represent each individual body better if uh, the body appears in a relation, in a social relation with another, then when the body is presented in isolation. So yeah, the the, the short answer is that yes, there is something special, and when I say special, I mean face-like special, in a sense. And so, as I said repeatedly. Uh, is uh, like a face perception is the gold standard of the efficiency of human visual perception. And so what we see is that some of these very efficient mechanisms that we have evolved, developed to process faces are used to process interacting people.
0: And so still about perception, there, there's something very specific that I haven't asked you about yet. So, what is body form and body motion perception? And in what ways exactly do these specific kinds of perception contribute to processing social events?
1: So, uh, these are uh, body body form and body motion are the two fundamental components uh, uh, that the visual system uses to build representation of an action. So, to understand... Uh, another's action, so what another person for instance is doing but is true also for the action of uh, animals and also for the movements of objects, we need to extract information about their structure. So for instance in the case of a person, um, how the various body parts are positioning with respect to each other, so if the hand is here, or here, this defines a different body posture, so a different body shape. So this is the body form uh, information. And then there is the other side that is the motion. So how the position of each part changes from time to time, and this defines the motion pattern. So these are two different aspects that then they are integrated. So these are the body form and or body shape and the body motion uh, are dissociated different different processes uh, also because they are um, uh, implemented, they are computed in different parts, in different brain regions. So we know that these are two different aspects. But of course, the regions that care about body motion and the regions that care about body shape work uh, in sync, work really like in a close interaction with each other. We say that they are functionally connected because the information needs to be integrated to deliver the representation of an action, of an action, which is the beginning of the process for action understanding. So we first need to understand the body posture, the body motion, and from there we can start all the inferential processes that allow us to understand what the other what the other's action goal is, uh, what the intention of the others are, and this this is what we call the social inference.
0: By the way, body form and body motion perception, are these in any way forms of embodied cognition?
1: So, um, no, these are visual processes. So the idea of embodied cognition, the general idea of embodied cognition is that uh, much of our cognitive life depends on our uh, experience in the environment. So it's based on, in particularly, in particular, our motor experience. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but when I talked about body uh, form and body motion, I was referring to visual processes, like the processing okay. through we extract information uh, from the physical structure of 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 the input. Now, does our experience, our experience, our action, motor experience in the environment affect the way in which we process other actions and social interactions? So we know that, uh, of course, like we uh, we are in in, we are in bodies. Like the brain is integrated in a body that has a a certain type of experience, and the the way like our history of interaction in the environment affects how we perceive other actions. There is a a very rich and uh, uh, complex literature on this. You know, relationship between action, understanding, and the motor, motor experience. We know much less about uh, how our experience of social interactions, so of interacting with others, affect the way in which we understand others' social interactions. I I think there is no there is no really like a fully developed line of research yet on this. But uh, you know, like uh, uh, there are a number of non-trivial questions to ask. For instance, uh, the idea is that when I observe an others perform another performing an action in order to understand that's the basic idea of embodiment to understand what the other is doing, I need to sort of use this as uh, a simulation process. I have to internally simulate the same action, and this allows me to understand what the others is doing. But now, in the context of social interaction, I'm observing two people or more people interacting with each other. So, how does the motor simulation work? Like, can we simulate multiple actions at the same time? So, there are more people interacting. Our motor system is busy at you know simulating all these actions. So, like, simultaneously, we are not sure the motor system can do it, We we are not sure the motor system can hold the representation of multiple motor programs at the same time, and, uh, oh, you know, we can think, oh maybe the the, the visual system selects the most important, the more imp- of two agents, and this is what it follows. that There is research that shows that we're very good at detecting in an interaction, who is the agent and who is the patient? So who is the one who is acting on the other? And so maybe, and we know that, um, the the system, the brain, privileges information about agents. So one possibility is that the motor simulation also privileges the simulation of the action of the person who is recognized as the agent. But again, these are all possible solutions, but uh, we don't know the answer yet.
0: But at least potentially there's some space for embodied cognition here. Well, well,
1: there is always a space for embodied cognition. <laughs> it's a, it's a, um, it's a very interesting uh, uh, angle to look at how uh, human cognition in general, like by you know relating the mind and the brain to the rest of the body, this is absolutely interesting because as I said, cognition doesn't happen in a vacuum. We are in a body and what happens to our body certainly affects our brain and our mind. But uh, I also have a very critical view of embodied cognition because uh, I think there are a lot of things, a lot of representations that uh, don't depend on motor experience, on our experience, are totally independent from from motor experience. And uh, so sometimes I tend to be a little bit critical toward the views that want to reduce the whole human cognition to motor experience.
0: So now I have a couple of questions that I think you've already at least slightly touched on them earlier. But when it comes to social representations, is the social entity itself as important as the relation that binds multiple entities together or not? So,
1: yeah, I think the relation is uh, uh, all that matters in, uh, in the social life and uh, in, uh, in for social cognition and uh, to the point that uh, um, when we see when we perceive a relation between uh, two social agents between two people uh, we, the brain creates uh, a whole new representation that uh, has almost nothing to do with the two people itself. Like what I mean, and we have have shown it really like empirically. So um, when we see two objects, the neural response to uh, the two objects seen simultaneously is typically a linear combination of the response to the two single objects. So we can, from from the response to the two objects together, we can retrieve information about the two single objects because the the information about the two single object is maintained in the representation of this composite representation that involves both objects. So if I see a pen and if I see these two objects and I measure the response to this first in the brain and then I measure the response to this, in the brain and then I measure the response to them both presented together. This response is typically an average or some linear combination of the response to the two single objects. But now what we see is that uh, when uh, we see two people and these two people are represented in a social interaction, the response to these two people is a nonlinear combination of the response to each individual body presented in isolation. And this nonlinear combination of the response to the individuals is an indication that the brain is building a new representation that has almost nothing to do with the individuals. And this new representation is basically the the core input for the social cognition system. So, yeah, the relation is perhaps more important than the individuals themselves.
0: And the relation is almost, uh, or perhaps it is even a different entity or a different kind of representation than... The two individual people, and even the two individual people interacting with one another. I mean, it, it's a thing in and of itself, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. that's that's again. That's my, I was to. Uh, enthusiastic in my yes but uh, that's my guess at the moment uh, yeah it's it's uh, we have uh, empirical data using fmri using uh, electroencephalography that uh, um, uh, can isolate this integrative response that suggests that the brain is transforming the input it to, into something that is a new thing that has nothing to do with the input itself. And we have seen this signature of integration a lot when it comes to the perception of interact, social interacting people.
0: And when it comes to the brain, do we know if there's actually visual specialization for dyadic human-human interactions? I mean, is there a specialization for that specifically or not? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. As I said, we have recorded using fMRI, we have recorded from visual cortex, from visual regions, and we have seen that there are some very selective parts of the visual system that seems to like facing dyads more than anything else. So this is already one signature of specialization. We have seen even in behavioral tasks, like if we present uh, stimuli uh, um, around the perceptual threshold, so in very low visibility conditions. So we are used to do this experiment to isolate uh, the limits of visual perception. And so we present stimuli, for instance, uh, low contrast stimuli, very rapidly to the subjects and the subjects have to report whether they see a stimulus or not. And we see that, uh, uh, and this this is one of the ways to measure the efficiency of, uh, uh, in the perception of a given type of stimuli, and uh, what we see is that, uh, again, when we presented these facing bodies, the system is much faster, so the responses are much faster and much more accurate than when present bodies in isolation or in other kind of spatial relations. So we have a behavioral, we have fMRI, we have EEG, electroencephalographic signature that suggests that there is a visual specialization for uh, facing diets and uh, visual specialization means that uh, we just have uh, uh, very efficient mechanisms to detect this kind of configuration in the space. So for instance, if I present subjects with a very cluttered and rich and noisy visual scene, data has two facing people somewhere in this scene, uh, we have seen that subjects immediately find these stimulus uh, in the in the clutter and this is and again another signature of the visual efficiency
0: so earlier we've talked about the kinds of cues that people process in looking at a social scene and interpreting it as for example when looking at the diet of people as interacting or non-interacting but how do we go from spatial relations between people to uh, perhaps trying to extract some information about the kind of relationship they have with one another and how much information can we extract from them, uh, about that?
1: So, as I said, unfortunately, I cannot give you an answer about how because we are just at the beginning of this enterprise. So maybe in a few years, we'll be able to know how we go from, you know, putting together, so the visual system knows that the two people are face to face, they are in space, they are touching each other maybe, uh, they, are, they have outstretched limbs toward each other. So they have all these features. So immediately the visual system um, uh, represents Okay, this might be a social interaction, and so this information package is put, is sent into the you know high-level networks for social inference, so the so-called social brain network. And from here, how do we come to understand, for instance, uh, that these two people are uh, two um, lovers, for instance, or are two enemies, uh, are competing? Uh, It's it's less clear. What I can say is that, again, we are uh, uh, very sensitive to small variations in the spatial temporal patterns. So, for instance, the way in which one object moves with respect to another can be immediately interpreted as uh, having uh, a a positive or a negative intention. So, and uh, you know, if you just a small acceleration in the movement of an object relative to another object, can suggest that one is chasing the other, or that the one, so it's one that is chasing the other, or that the other is escaping from the other. Like a small variation in the acceleration for instance, can give a completely different cognitive representation, mental representation of what we see. But again, the computational, uh, machinery that does this from you know seeing bodies faces facing each other especially close to understand the the rich nature of a social interaction that's really an open question
0: mm-hmm. and do we have a good idea of what of what are the areas of the brain that are part of the network that that processes, processes social information
1: yeah, I mean we do. Um, so definitely, there is a, a, an important contribution of visual areas. As I said, we have been discussing this so far, like uh, visual areas extract of a lot, a lot of of useful information for social inference, and um, and uh, I I'd say that. Uh, Because of the importance of uh, social life from our survival, we have developed a number of very efficient mechanisms to do so. So visual mechanisms dedicated to um, extract socially relevant information. But then uh, uh, outside the the visual system, the visual system is just the entry of the information in the brain, and outside of the visual information in the brain, but then outside the visual system, there there is no one network. There are many networks that uh, uh, implement processes that are relevant for uh, social cognition. For instance, the action understanding network is the network dedicated to understand the action, and what understanding an action means, means understand the goals, and intentions of an action. There is uh, the theory of mind or the mentalizing network which is another set of regions that is uh, dedicated to what we call mind reading, what's in another mind, what the others are thinking. Also we are very good at that and um, we don't know how that happens. And um, and, uh, uh, then there is of course the semantic system, the conceptual system that represent all the knowledge that we have about the others. And uh, in particular, the social knowledge seems to be a very specific type of knowledge that is represented probably in dedicated part of the larger semantic system. So yeah, uh, what we need to understand is really the specific computation in each of these regions and also how the information travels within these networks and how these network, uh, networks interact with each other. Let me just add the la- last thing. Uh, I talked a lot about visual information, socially relevant visual information because that's what I study. But you know, there is, there, there is not just vision, there are other sensory mm-hmm. modalities. And the other sensory modalities carry also a lot of relevant information for social cognition. Uh, As uh, we talked about uh, briefly about speech, the acoustic signal, there's nothing more social than speech. And uh, the smell is another um, field that uh, is is receiving a lot of attention uh, because it's uh, probably one of the fundamental, uh, foundations of uh, it provides some foundations to uh, social
0: relationships
1: so it's um, it's uh, it's a long it's gonna be a long way
0: yeah of course it's important to mention that that we here today were we were focusing on spatial relations and on visual information Because that's the main focus of your research, but of course we do not only process visual information, but also information from the other senses when interacting with other people
1: it's important it's important to 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 say so also not just because it's fair for our colleagues who don't study vision but also because uh, vision is one of the uh, most if not the most studied aspect of the human brain uh, and Some believe that vision is also the main sensory modality for humans. Uh, Some agree, some don't agree with that, but it's true that we we have a a representation of the brain that is very much centered on visual processing, but it's uh, it's fair to acknowledge that there are other important modalities and, uh, uh, and, and fields of research that needs to be acknowledged.
0: Of course. So let's get into our last topic slash question. So we've been focusing on humans here, but what about non-human animals? Because I mean, we as people, I guess that we also look at the spatial relations, body configurations of other animals. And for example, there are some biped Animals and some quadrupeds as well. So do we distinguish in specific ways between those two and how does that work uh, on the level of the brain neurologically?
1: So there are two aspects of this research. I'm trying to answer them both. The first one is uh, our perception of other animals that are Mm -hmm. non-humans. So... um, uh, the mechanism that I describe, the first general uh, answer to the question is that all the mechanisms that I described so far, uh, like this ability to process faces, biological motion, bodies, so this is why I talk about faces, biological motion, uh, bodies, bodies and not human bodies, not human faces. Non-human motion, because these, especially in the visual cortex, the regions that cares about this, uh, that care about this important aspect of the social life, recognizing faces, bodies, motion, um, operate uh, over uh, any animate entity. So they don't seem to care much whether a face is a human face or a monkey face. For instance, the fusiform face area, which is the region that responds to faces, that has this very strong selective response to faces, doesn't show a very reliable difference between a human face and a monkey face or a cat face. And the same is for the regions that uh, um, process motion. Uh, they process biological motion so any kind of motion that looks like has uh, the property of a biological motion relative to mechanic motion but uh, uh, they don't have much uh, you know finer uh, fine grain distinctions in terms of you know uh, the, the species that is uh, moving, whether it's a human or not. So in you know, uh, one uh, line of research, we really ask the question whether the visual system really doesn't help at all in the distinction between a human and non-human animals, which is very important for us. I mean, we need to, to, to know whether and animating is a human, is a conspecific or not, and uh, uh, we were very, uh, I was very particularly surprised by the research on biological motion because it was a little bit confusing, like most of the field was talking about biological motion, but some authors were talking about, you know, these regions being attuned to human motion. So I wanted to see whether they're really tuned to human motion, which means that these regions are capable of distinguishing what is human from what is non-human, or in fact, they're picking up some feature in the motion that is typical of humans, but that they don't really recognize what is a human and what is a non-human thing. So the intuition, the idea that we had was, okay, we can uh, uh, present videos of uh, uh, four kind of animate entities. A walking man, just a human who walks, another human, a baby, crawling, uh, quatre pattes, uh, four legs crawling, and uh, a cat is a non-human, which also wo- walks uh, uh, with, with four legs, and a chick, a chick who is a non-human, but like the prototypical human walks with two legs. So we wanted to see whether the regions in the visual cortex that uh, care about motion could really distinguish human from non-human, in which case we 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 should see that response to the man and the baby is more similar than the response to the cat and the chicken, or they are not really human uh, preferring regions, but they actually only care about motion. And so what they can distinguish is the kind of motion, and they don't care whether it's a human or non-human. And because there are these two big categories of motion, bipedal motion, which is typical of the human species, but not only of the human species, and quadrupedal motion, we predicted that if these regions only care about the kind of motion, we should find that the response to the man is more similar to the response to the cheek because they are both bipedals. and the response to the cat is more similar to the neural response to the baby because these are two quadrupeds. They're moving with four legs. And this is exactly what we found. So this means that, yes, the, what, what this means is that, yes, the visual system uh, is capable of making distinctions, a subtle distinction in this case in the type of motion, which might be useful then to distinguish what is a human from a non-human, but they are not yet representations of humanness. The visual system doesn't seem to care much about humanness. It cares about animated things, animals, whatever is a biological entity. Of course you can find the differences uh, for instance uh, because you know I don't want to uh, you know colleagues to jump and say no but uh, also you know like uh, the response to human faces in the visual system is stronger but then it becomes hard to, to know whether it's just an effect of familiarity because we see a lot of human faces and we have seen very few monkey faces in our life. So you can pick up this difference due to the familiarity of the stimulus to which the visual system is very sensitive, but it doesn't mean that uh, uh, intrinsically the visual system care about the human-non-human distinction.
0: Uh, and I guess that uh, one very interesting thing about studying these about the brain processes information, I mean motion information and spatial uh, uh, and the information about the body and spatial relationship uh, relations between humans and non-humans is that these also might also inform us about if about whether specific areas of the brain are specialized for processing human related information or if they are perhaps more domain general and they are specialized just for motion or for particular body configurations or something like that. Right.
1: Yeah. So the kind of manipulation that I described where we manipulated the motion in the the bipedal versus quadrupedal, human versus non-human, is one example of the kind of manipulation that we do, and this is why it's fun to be an experimentalist, because, you know, we have the brain, the brain activity, but then we have to read the information in that activity. So we can use this kind of manipulation to see, okay, what's in that activity? What's the information in that activity? His information about a species, a human versus non-human, his information about uh, uh, motion, so bipedal versus quadrupedal, and so in this way exactly with this manipulation we found that in fact that these regions in the visual cortex really care about motion, that's all they care about, but there are other regions in a higher level, in higher order systems that uh, instead begin to make the distinction between a human and a human because our cognition needs to make that distinction
0: Great, so uh, Dr. Papeu just before we go would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet?
1: Yes, so I have a website a personal website uh, www. sorry, dot I'm learning French so it's like
0: (laughs) That's okay
1: <laughs> it's it's terrible. So www.liubapapeo.com. I'm also active on Twitter as Liuba uh, P. uh, I have recently joined this uh, blue sky uh, platform now website uh, which is uh, which is gathering a lot of you know scientists around the world uh, where we have very interesting discussions and uh, uh, or you can always reach me by email my email addresses are available on my, my, uh, my website and my institutional website
0: Great, so I'm leaving links to all of that in the description box of this interview and thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
1: My pleasure and thanks for having me again.
0: Hi everyone, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in the description box down below. And if you like the interview, please share it, leave a like, hit the subscription button, and comment. This show is brought to you by NLights Learning and Development and Differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Ferruga Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernard Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henrik Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, then Demetri, Robert Windega, Rui Nassi, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Phil Cavanaugh, Michael Stormer, Samuel Andrea, Francis Forti, Nunes, Fergal Lkos, and Harl Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Lunyar, Stanton T, Samuel Courrey, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamill, Sardos Friends, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Des Araújo, Ruben Roach. Diego Lundonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicola Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasewski, Nelec Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Ponce-Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Georgios Georgiustiofenos, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Eriksson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amore Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigbon, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Zigor Jeff McMahon, Jake Zuhl, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandon, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Bensleyman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Perk Rollis, Kate Van Goghler, Alexander Robert, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masoud Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hertner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings, David Pinsoff, Sean Nelson, and Mike Levine. A special thanks to my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanegden, Bernard Diogni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Muller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carl Montenegro, Alnyk Ortiz, and Nick Golden and to my executive producers Matthew Lavender, Sergio Adriano, Bogdan Kanivets and Rosie. Thank you for all